Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Robin Dunbar, who's Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Oxford. And if that discipline is a new one to you, don't worry, Robin is about to explain what it is. Robin's books include The Trouble with Science, described by the Sunday Times as an elegant riposte to the anti-science lobby, and more recently, The Human Story, which New Scientist called punchy and provocative. The book he's just published is called How Many Friends Does One Person Need? And if you listen to this interview, you'll find out. You'll also find out why a scientist would take an interest in Lonely Hearts columns, why our brains are not perfectly adapted to the demands the modern world makes of them, and you'll hear what an Oxford professor makes of Twitter. First, though, here's Robin explaining what evolutionary anthropology is. I guess evolutionary anthropology and evolutionary psychology are not themselves that different in the sense that pretty much everything that comes under the rubric of evolutionary psychology, which is really to do with the origins of the human mind as much as anything else, also sort of now anyway features in evolutionary anthropology. Evolutionary anthropology would just add the bones and the stones in as well of, of sort of human evolution. So the sort of anatomical aspects of how we got the shape of body we have and you know, obviously the stone tools that were left littered about the landscape by our ancestors. And in the book you mentioned that your interest in evolution dates back to your boyhood and uh, an American grandmother who, who piqued that interest. Yes, it was very strange really actually because my American grandmother was a f- absolutely fierce Presbyterian uh, missionary in fact, but she was a surgeon as well by background, that's how she you know, sort of, that that's what she did as a missionary, as a missionary doctor. And so she had enough of the science in her to be very interested in human evolution. It didn't phase her in the way that the evolutionary story has phased, let's say, the sort of creationist wing of the Protestant church. And I guess the discipline was sort of emergent as your career developed. When, when you began it, it didn't exist in its, its current shape. It really didn't. And, and, Almost everything I do hardly existed when I started, actually. I mean, it's been quite exciting because we've been through, in my lifetime, a couple of major scientific revolutions, really. I mean, you had the bare bones of the human evolution story in the sense that they discovered some fossils and they were perhaps over the, you know, from about the 1850s when the first human fossils were actually recognised for what they were. You'd had, you know, a century of... uh, odd fossils here and there and there was a kind of what turns out to be rather a rudimentary account of how these fossils link together to create the human tree which was very sparse and by comparison with what we now understand it to be like but you know the rate at which fossils have been discovered has been exponential so probably something like 80% of all known human fossils were discovered since I started getting interested in this in the 1950s. And what was it that sort of drew your curiosity on? Because the book describes a, a wealth of different research projects and, and areas of, of human uh, life. So is it this sort of overarching question of what is it that makes us human that sort of pulled you forward? Not really, actually. It's kind of odd because I began life as a philosopher. That's what I was really interested in. And that's what I wanted to do at school. And so I did a degree in philosophy, but it was combined with psychology. And I always say, if I had done a plain philosophy degree, 
I would probably now be quite a good good second-hand car salesman in Blackpool, but no better. <laughs> but because I had to do psychology with it, and I had no background in the sciences, psychology really introduced me to the sciences. And to tell the truth, what probably made the big difference was one of our main courses in the first year of that psychology is actually taught by the ethologist Tinberg. And this was at the sort of height of the big initial development in the study of animal behavior of animals in the out there in the field. Jane Goodall had just gone out to start her studies of chimpanzees at Gombe. And so this was sort of very much in the air. And I just got drawn into that. And in fact, the very sort of first 10, 15 years of my academic career was actually spent watching monkeys. All through the book, it's, it's clearly a, an important issue looking at how especially the great apes behave and comparing their behaviour with ours, looking for similarities but also differences. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid to say that the question of how humans are different from great apes or alternatively whether great apes are really human is one of those things that's come to dominate this area in the last 10, 15 years in particular. And I kind of, I mean, my background is more in a sense in, in evolutionary biology, zoology. So I look at the world and I'm more inclined to ask, well, yes, humans are just kind of great apes. We don't have to pretend to make great apes on our side of some uh, great boundary that separates the world into two kinds, as it were. We're just part of a continuum. And okay, we do stuff that nobody else does, and that needs an explanation. But at the end of the day, we're just another great ape, albeit a very smart one. But that position must lead to a lot of resistance. I think that there's quite a lot of um, unwillingness, isn't there, to, to go along with that? I'm not really sure that probably the majority of people are that sort of um, would disagree that much with it. I mean, obviously, you've got the sort of creationist wing. I guess, in all the um, Abrahamic religions, which sort of separate humans off in a, in a very distinctive sort of way from, from animals and, and won't have any truck at all with the idea that humans might have evolved as part of a natural world, they're always going to be difficult to deal with because that's a matter of belief and you know, nothing you can say will dissuade them otherwise, usually. But at the end of the day, I think most people, certainly in Europe, are perfectly happy with uh, you know the idea that humans have evolved even you know the Catholic Church has accepted it as kosher now tell me about Dunbar's number that appears on the the front cover of the book tell tell me um, what it is Dunbar's number is the number itself is 150 but what it is is the number of people you can have a relationship with with. That's to say a relationship that's kind of based on a history. It's built up over time. It's There's a relationship of kind of reciprocity and obligation in there. They're the kind of people that you would consider sending Christmas cards to, for example. Or you might reasonably think of calling in on if you happen to be um, in their neck of the woods. It relates to the cognitive capacity of our brains. It's because the number is 150 because beyond that we, we can't really cope with a larger number of friends. The origins of this come, go back to trying to understand what limits social group size in primates. So we happen to come up with a, quite a nice relationship between social group size and 
the si relative size of, of the brain across a whole range of primate species. And then one day I was looking at this and I idly thought, I wonder what we could do with humans if we plugged human brains into this, what would it tell us? And that produced this number 150. But what it does seem to sort of really identify is the limits on the number of individuals you can have a relationship of obligation with in the end. So when you look at modern phenomena like Facebook, does that change things in any way? I was thinking, you know, there would have been a time when the relationships we had were only with people in our immediate physical vicinity. And then when you get things like post and telephones, that, that you begin to have different kinds of long distance relationships. So by the time you get to Facebook, are, are those mainly, you know, superficial relationships, purely numerical, statistical, computational kind of um, tallies rather than anything more far reaching? In other words, we're not changing our, our innate capacities or human relationships. It seems that what Facebook does really is just allow you to keep contact with people whom you have known in the past. Basically, that's to say, if you look at most people's Facebook pages as it were the number of people they have listed as friends typically it's somewhere between about 120 and 150 in other words they've got everybody there perhaps except granny who's not on the internet their kind of facebook world is their social world on the other hand obviously you've had this sort of competitive streak you know how many facebook friends have you got well i've got 300 well i've got 500 and it really looks as though most of those people out beyond the 150 that you get sort of signed up kind of more like voyeurs on your social world you don't really have that much of a relationship with them and they're part of that sort of sector of people whom you know you've met you recognize who they are you know their name you might say hello to in the street but probably you wouldn't think of going and having a drink with them unless you were very bored and what about Twitter? Is there an, an evolutionary anthropological sort of perspective on that? I have no idea about Twitter. <laughs> it's a mystery to me. I mean, it, it is very strange, but I think there is a sense that we, we are fascinated by the doings of, as it were, the great and the good or celebrities, you know, whatever defines them as celebrities. And it's those people that seem to, more than any other, as far as, at least as far as I can make out, create the sort of world of Twitter. In other words, if Joe Smith started a Twitter feed, as it were, and kept writing on what he had for breakfast and the like, probably only a very small number of people would be interested. But if Stephen Fry does it, then everybody signs up because they all want to know what Stephen Fry is doing. I think as a sometime Twitter user and also someone who's read your book and absorbed some of the, the message in it, that male and female tweeting obeys the same kind of patterns that other forms of, of communication obey in that I think male tweeting tends to be more broadcasting, sort of saying sort of things about one's own status, whereas female seems to be much more about communicating within a, a social group. That's actually very interesting. I mean, I, I, I have uh, steered as far clear of Twitter as I can possibly do. Um, I'm not even on Facebook. <laughs> Never mind, you know, modern versions, as it were, upmarket versions like Twitter. So that's kind of interesting to know. And one of it's interesting in the context of the fact that men and women do seem to have organised their social worlds in very different ways. One of the the the, the sort of pointers in that direction 
is a study we've just finished looking at how youngsters use their mobile phones. This is in the transition to go to university, as it were, and how they use them to keep up with friends at home. And it's very, very striking. The thing that causes relationships, which would normally sort of die off, let's say relationships with friends, uh, would normally sort of decline over time. What stops them, those relationships declining for girls, is the opportunity to talk. And what stops relationships declining for boys is doing stuff together. Right? So that as a result of that, they use their mobile phones in a very different way. So the girls have these long conversations. The boys use it for 15 seconds. They see you down at the pub at seven o'clock. That's, that's the end of the conversation. Should we be surprised then when your discipline turns up results which we kind of instinctively feel to be right, that men and women have different communication strategies, that boys without girls, you talk about China and the population imbalance, you know, boys without girls spell trouble. Or does that simply mean that we intuitively know things about human behaviour which your discipline is sort of producing evidence for? I think it was actually Richard Dawkins commented once that uh, the best kind of science is that which tells you what you already know. In other words, you go, oh yeah, I knew that all along. I just never thought about it. It actually makes it clear what's going on. And of course, deep science, the outer reaches of space or the inner reaches of physics and atoms and so on, we really can't grasp. But human behavior, we live human behavior night and day. We're very good at it. And therefore, you know, it's not surprising that what we do in studying this really uncovers a lot of the stuff which we know intuitively. The problem is we don't often actually understand it. We know how to, how to operate with it. And I suppose this is one of the hallmarks of humans. We're extremely good at spotting correlations in the world. You know, that there are perfectly good reasons why astrology, as it were, might work because it's on an annual cycle and the seasons go with that and you it doesn't take a lot of experience in the world to realize that if you plant your crops the times when certain zodiac signs are in the ascendant they do better than at other times so we're very good at spotting those kind of correlations what we're not obviously good at is figuring out why that's so because that actually requires deep science so from our point of view we're kind of uncovering and making explicit i suppose some of the things which we live by, but we can go one layer deeper than that and explain both what the origins of those features are in evolutionary terms, why they've come to be that way rather than any other way, and also what the mechanisms are that make them possible. So at the cognitive, the neuroscience level, you know, what it is about the human brain that produces these, is sort of prepared, as it were, uh, to produce those kind of effects. And I suppose to completely overturn my previous question, the human brain is also very good intuitively at seeing causality where there is no causality. And you write about dichotomies, perceiving the world in dichotomous terms, where in fact, that's, you know, we, we've got a spectrum. So it's not, its intuitions are not always well-founded. No, that is fair, absolutely fair. I'm, I think the problem is we know the world is driven by causes, as it were. When we kick a table, it hurts. If you kick a ball, it moves, these kind of things. So this is part of everyday physics. So in order to live in that world, we have to be able to predict it and under, you know, understand at least how it works well enough to be able to predict into the future what's going to happen. So 
our brain kind of does work overtime on that. That's absolutely true. But the world is very complicated. And to understand the real complexity of the world would require enormous computing power. But most of the time you don't need that. You know, you can get by with really quite large simplifications, hence our tendency to view the world in simple dichotomies, we sort of separate black, black and white, as it were, cartoon version of the world. And that's perfectly good enough to get us through life and quite happily. It's not good enough, you know, to keep tsunamis at bay, though. Well, as, as the world becomes more complex, I mean, you cite the, um, the, the tag Stone Age Minds in a Space Age World, do we become less and less well adapted to coping with the complexity of the world? You know, going back to the 150 individuals, that was how the world was for a long time. But now it's not, you know, we're coping with all sorts of other different levels of interaction. I think the problem that we're having now is actually that we are stuck with this sort of mindset that's done us very well up to now and it's designed to work in small scale societies and clearly you know we've since the industrial revolution in particular perhaps since the agricultural revolution when settlements first started but I think really since the industrial revolution in the middle of the 19th century where you had massive concentrations of people in one place to provide big labor forces our physical environment is much more on a much larger scale than we have ever experienced in our evolutionary history so in some sense we're not well adapted to it and there is another aspect to that that's quite important and that is the kind of economic mobility we have so you know you're, you're born in i don't know let's say uh, huddersfield and you go to university in bath and then you go off to your first job in london and then a few years later your firm moves you to birmingham or something like that and you sort of go through life building up little pockets of friends in each of these places whom you leave behind. And so you end up with these very fragmented social networks which don't have the kind of compact density that natural social networks have in traditional societies and indeed probably had in Britain and the rest of Europe right up until maybe as late as the 1950s where you had small rural communities, even you know if you think of the sort of east end of London slum communities you know they were very the street was the street almost you know coronation street as it were where everybody knows everybody else everybody's bedded into this very complex dense web of interrelationships and that contrast from from that past which was actually very recent really to the present state where you have these tent people tend to have these fragmented networks is, I think, a very big jump, and probably we're not coping very well with it. Does human behaviour throw up surprises when you conduct research? Do you sometimes encounter things which seem to run against all your expectations based on what you know about human behaviour? Well, there is a rule in science which says never say never, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) because the world has a way of slapping you in the face when when you're too cocksure about what you think you know. But it is, I mean, that's what, in a way, what the whole process of science is about. It's about pushing your theories to the limit in order to find the places where they don't work, because that tells you what the limits on that theory is, and therefore what is missing from it, from the complete explanation. So it's always kind of fun when you uh, 
finds something that you didn't expect. And I, I guess this whole relationship between group size and brain size in the primates was really utterly unexpected. I don't think anybody anticipated that that would be true. And are there social policy issues that or implications of what you do? I mean, it seemed to me that there are potentially quite a lot about how we organise society and all sorts of other human relationships. There are, I think, uh, not least for things like organisational structure, because one of the implications of what we do has been that relationships of obligation are really close into you. And therefore, if your organisation is too big, you will lose that sense of belonging to a community and commitment to the other members of the community that actually makes businesses, uh, government departments, you name it, actually work effectively. And the same sort of implication must follow on for the organisation, I suspect anyway, for the organisation of things like schools. One just wonders whether modern schools, where they may maybe have 1,500 students in the place, are just too big. There are implications, I think, for the structure of communities in terms of kind of local government, as it were. You kind of wonder, well, how can we get back to that sense of commitment to the community as a community, to the project, as it were, of the community, in the way that small rural communities essentially used to be, such that they are, once again, providing that kind of social support to the members of the community. It's, it's a problem I think we have to try and solve, but I'm not sure I can see the way to solve it. Let me ask you finally, Robin, you researched Lonely Hearts columns. What were you looking for there? We were interested in mate choice, essentially. What traits men and women base their choice of mates on? And this really arose out of a lot of work that had been done on animals in general, where there's this sort of a whole issue of the difference between the two sexes in the criteria which they use to judge an ideal mate. It had been developed over about 20 years and was very, very sophisticated. And it just seemed an interesting question to ask of humans. At the point at which I discovered the existence of Lonely Hearts ads, because here was just a little, it summarised in a very, very few words, just the nub of what people were asking for. And of course, because they often, at least in those days, had to pay for the ad, they weren't always free, that made them think carefully before they put words to paper, as it were. And so it gave you a sense of what it was that, uh, in an ideal world, and you have to see Lonely Hearts ads as the first bid, as it were, in a game of poker. Robin Dunbar. How many friends does one person need is out now in hardback. <laughs>